Thanks to Cryo Malt, the grain of truth in every beer. This is the conversation behind every beer. I'm Matt Kirkegaard. This week, we have an interesting chat with bucket boy Jonathan Hepner. This conversation arose from an interesting article on the beer blog, Sydney Beer, titled Buy Beware, The Real Cost of Buying Beer from Overseas. In it, Jonathan raised the apparently growing trend of consumers looking to directly purchase beers from overseas and the impact that this trend was having on businesses such as Bucket Boys. The Bucket Boys, Jonathan and his business partner Clint Elvin, are mainstays of the Sydney beer scene. They run a temple of good beer that is dedicated to supplying beer lovers with a huge selection of local beers and hard-to-get imports. They are also passionate about beer education. However, Jonathan's call for the pointy-end beer geek to stop skirting around specialist retailers in their search for the latest and greatest raises a number of interesting questions. Bucket Boys goes to great lengths to have rare imported beers in stock, sometimes sourced against the wishes of the brewers who made them. They play to the hype for the new and the rare that arguably gives rise to the problem that Jonathan is now warning against. Is this a case of sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind? How do you maintain a business based to some extent on the novelty and hype of the pointy end consumer as you scale your business up? We look at these questions and it's a great chat with a very forthright beer lover. In addition to discussing the challenge posed by the pointy end, we also talk about Bucket Boys expansion plans, including a soon-to-be-announced equity crowdfunding campaign that values a business at $10 million. Enjoy the conversation. Jonathan Hepner, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Hey, how's it going? Very well, mate. We haven't had you on the podcast. Now, there's a whole range of issues that we want to sort of touch on today, but just so our listeners who maybe don't know of you uh, through the Sydney beer scene, maybe tell us a little bit of uh, who is Jonathan Hepner, how did you get involved in beer, and uh, how did you come to found Bucket Boys? Awesome. I moved to Australia about six and a half years ago, almost coming up on seven years ago now. Um, at the time, I was working in the music industry for a while, and uh, I kind of wanted to change the scenery. Um, so I flew over here um, just on a holiday, pretty much a working holiday visa, and I met my wife about three or four weeks into my trip and just never left. Um, but obviously, the uh, the music industry is, is just kind of a dying industry as far as lots of jobs and um um, you know, with the streaming services and with, you know, the loss of revenue, there just wasn't much going on. So I kind of, I wanted to change uh, scenery and I started getting really interested in beer, um, mostly because my wife and I would go to Dan Murphy, surprisingly enough, and we would do the little, you know, pick the singles thing, which I loved. Um, and uh, so uh, from that, I started volunteering at batch brewing company keeping that american linkage going yeah I, I i really enjoyed the volunteering i i think volunteering is is really a great way to break into the industry of any industry it's how i got in the music music industry as well if if you hang around long enough eventually they find something for you to do um the funny thing is, is that i found out very quickly that i didn't like making beer and i didn't like the production process i just really <laughs> like talking about beer i like drinking and i like uh, telling other people about it. I'm with you on that one. I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do, however, love the cre- I like the creation process. It's, I'm just not a. Uh, 
I'm not a person of detail. Um, and I, I do know that about myself. And I feel like to be a great brewer, you have to really be good at paying attention to the finer details. Um, and so what I did during that time was found out that I, I had a knack for, um, you know, working behind the bar and, and, and selling beer is, is basically what I found out. And the more and more I learned about it, the more I realized that it really fit in with my interests because beer is all about history. It's all about people and places. Um, and it's all about experiencing new things every time you, you know, you, you try something uh, different. Um, and I really love the culture of craft beer because it reminded me a lot of the music industry and other industries that I've been in where it's this kind of small, close-knit community. Everyone knows each other. They say, they say hi to each other. I love that part of it. Um, and so I started basically getting into it and I decided that I wanted to learn a whole lot about beer. I wanted to just really dive in, which is really my personality. Um, so I took a job at the Lord Raglan, actually, um, when, when The Rocks was running that. So I left volunteering a batch, went full-time into beer, started studying for my Cicerone. Um, and then the guys at batch called me about a year later and said, hey, we need somebody to run our tasting room. We want to come back. Like, so I'll, case in point, my whole thing about volunteering opens doors, you know, it really opened the door for me to come back to batch. I learned a, a, a heap there. Um, during that time, I took what was, I believe, the first uh, certified Cicerone test in Australia. There were about eight of us who passed, I think, uh, around Australia. And so that really kind of kicked it off for me. Um, that Cicerone test gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and at the same time, I was, I've been playing around with this idea for years, uh, you know, through all this process of, you know, that experience that I had at Dan Murphy's how, was, was kind of a fleeting one because we ran out of beers to choose very quickly. Um, and I thought, well, what if there is a place that you can go to where you walk in and every time there's just new beers to find, you know, and there's all these things to try and there's someone there to help you who's really knowledgeable and enthusiastic. And it's not a place of elitism and people, you know, putting up their nose at you. Not, not that I'm saying that some of the other great bottle shops and bars are, um, but I really wanted to create like a safe space for people to e explore. Um, and so that's how Bucket Boys came about was conversations with myself and my business partner, Clint at Batch talking about, you know, what, what the interwest really needs is not another brewery. It needs a, a hub for beer. And so, yeah. So then we moved really quickly and formed Bucket Boys in late 2015 and kind of been doing that ever since. And, and so talk a little bit about uh, the Bucket Boys business model, because you have a retail storefront, but also online. And then you also make beer or get beer made for you under your brand. I love talking about this because I don't know how many people uh, have heard the story. I'm sure a few people who are listening have probably heard it way too many times, but um, because of my years in the, in the music industry, what I wanted to build was a business based off the record label model. Um, now, the good thing about beer is that you can't download it and you can't stream it. So it has to be experienced. It has to be paid for each time. So unlike a CD, if I put out a piece of art or I put out a piece of music, someone buys that once uh, in a physical form and then they have it forever. But what I loved about the, the business opportunity of beer, if just looking at it from the business side was that, you know, every time I want to try uh, an Akasha Hopsmith or a batch, you know, pale ale, I have to go and buy that each time. So that presents kind of repeat customers. And uh, uh, I saw, you know, that the business model of the record industry is really, really quite sophisticated and, and works. It worked really well for years until people figured out how to steal music. Um, and that's the idea of that. You're not just one thing, but you're uh, a kind of a sum of parts. 
And so our shop is basically set up like a record label. So the bottle shop is like going into a record store. You know, the uh, brewery is like the recording studio. Um, doing events and tap takeovers is like our live, uh, you know, touring. And so every each part of it, which um, I can I spell out in great detail uh, a few times, but I don't want to go into it here. Um, the idea is that we've set up this place to curate and foster art. And in this case, the art is the beer, whether it be the design of the cans or what's inside the can or the person who makes it, who, you know, spends their time creating this. Um, we're, we want to be kind of like a, a, a place that fosters this creativity, if that makes sense. Nice little linkage into what we're talking about um, today because last week on the Sydney Beer um, website um, in their newsletter, uh, there was an interesting article that you'd contacted them to talk about this idea of consumers self-importing um, and you know going online, buying beer from overseas and getting it sent directly to them and bypassing um, retailers such as yourself. Can you just sort of give us a bit of a, a summary about what the issue is from your point of view? When I reached out to Tim, I, it, it's not necessarily an issue that I have as much as it is a trend I'm seeing uh, with some of the high-end beer buying that's going on in Australia. And it all stems back to a problem that many people like yourself who have been in the industry for a while have noticed over the years. It's this idea of people see things they want. They realize that no one in Australia is going to get it for them. So they go online and they find it somewhere else and they, they get it themselves. Because we're kind of in this culture um, right now where, you know, uh, the people don't want barriers between what they see and what they, you know, what they want to have, I guess that, and so, you know, barriers being the distributor or the bottle shop that gets it in or, you know, place of origin. And so, um, but what I started to see, and the reason why I said it was kind of an issue is that a lot of these people are our um, high-end customers. And so a lot of the beers we stock, we, we spend a lot of money on and then they're pretty rare and they cost a lot of money to bring in. And um, the less that we move of those, because that business is going elsewhere, the less, you know, that we're in, enticed to bring them in. And so I see that there's sort of a detriment to the local beer economy in a couple of ways. One is that most people have a finite amount of money to spend on beer, whether it be $100 a week or $1,000 a week or $20 a week, right? They, can, they pretty much have a budget for how much they can spend on takeaway alcohol. Now, if their $50 a week is going to buy something online from the U.S., gray import it, um, I mean, who am I to tell them not to? I guess what I see is the problem is that that $50 is $50 that's not going into the Australian beer economy. And then on the second part of this problem, what I see is that because our, some of our beers are moving slower, we're less uh, likely and we're less able because of cash flow restrictions to buy more of them. And so we end up having to skip things or just decide not to bring things in. And you might say, well, who cares, right? It doesn't matter, but it does for a couple of reasons. One, for the distributor or the importer who brings the stuff in, if it doesn't sell well, they're less likely to bring it in the next time, right? Because if I bring a bunch of barrel-aged sours in and the bottle shops go, you know what, we're all full, we don't really want them, then I'm, I'm not gonna go out and get another container full of them and try to slog through trying to, to bring them in. The other problem is that if they're not sitting here in the shop, that means the people who aren't in the know, who aren't the high-end person are never going to stumble across them. And so 
the the level of of beer knowledge and beer awareness in Australia is going to suffer because of it. And I think that that is where the danger lies. Um, I really don't want to run a shop that's based off, you know, a fridge full of pale ales and IPAs. I want to be able to have this diversity and have this rarity. I think that's part of the appeal of Bucket Boys. But I also know that, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people kind of navigate towards the mean, so to speak, because what a lot of shops are finding is that catering to these high-end customers is great when they're shopping with you. But as soon as they have found something else somewhere else, that beer is sitting on the shelf, it's eating your cash flow, and it's not really, you know, a driver of the business anymore. I see a danger in that. But isn't that the market at work? Um, and because again, I, I was fascinated when you said um, at the start that uh, you know, in the music industry, um, digital allowed people to download, and so they didn't actually have to buy a physical disc. And then you know, there was the, the the sharing, and beer didn't have that. But in, in, in your own way, haven't you sort of run into the same problem that maybe, um, you know, book publishers and music publishers who wanted to sort of say, well, Australia's a different market, we'll release um, our movie in Australia, you know, nine month, in nine months' time when we want to. And then a whole lot of uh, Australian consumers said, well, I, I want it now. Um, and I'll, if, if you won't give it to me as the uh, authorised supplier, I'm going to go online and download it. Um, and that was certainly, you know, I'm old enough to remember the early days of online um, downloading, and that was the mindset that, you know, the pirates, um, for want of a better word, used to justify their downloading, and it forced a, a change of the business model. So, um, Of course. So here's what I'm, here's what I'm I, I guess, what you're pointing out is absolutely 100% correct. And I think that this is not a simple issue. Uh, and I think that what the music industry, the mistake they made is they thought they were so powerful that they could just say no and that everyone would, would listen to them. So that's not what I'm advocating. I guess what I'm advocating is a bit of awareness. And that's what I think the music industry and the movie industry didn't do. And the awareness is how this actually affects real Australians and real local business and, and the local beer market. Now, the way it affected the music market is pretty extensive because now what you see is that all of those, you know, album releases that you loved whenever you were a kid or growing up, they're not around anymore. People don't release 12 song albums, you know, in concepts. And what they end up doing is focusing on singles and hits and things that can be pumped out really quick. And so I think the art suffers. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen with beer. What I am saying is that um, I think people should at least be made aware of what the, what the effects are besides um, just, you know, the idea of that, you know, if I got this beer online, it at least, I, I, you know, now I've got to try it. You know, it's their fault for not bringing it in. Um, but I also think that something that isn't talked about, and it doesn't really correlate to what you're saying, is that in beer, I think a lot of the times the overseas brewery and or, you know, the, the overseas market that's supplying these um, is not taking any of the blame for this. And, and what, what I mean by that is that, you know, um, I guess uh, here's a good example. Um, you know, a brewery says, uh, we're not sending our beers over because we can't, uh, you know, trust the quality of them coming over, right? And then they end up coming over here anyways, gray and old and taste bad. Well, that detriments the brewery because, you know, I remember four years ago walking into Beer Cartel and, and buying a Dogfish Head beer and going, well, I don't remember it tasting like this. I thought I liked it, you know? And this isn't saying anything. I'm just saying beer cartel, but it could be anybody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm no, not no, saying no. anything bad no, about No, 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 no. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. What I'm saying is that I think that it is a complex issue, and I think that you are right. 
Uh, I also think that people might have to make a, a decision at some point to go, is this, you know, uh, culture of seeking out the craziest, newest, you know, a most amazing thing they've never tried all the time. Is that sustainable? And I can tell you as a bottle shop owner that it's not sustainable. And so if you want the best beers to come over here and you want them to come over here properly, you know, stored properly, sent properly, handled properly. And if you want to have that selection when you walk into your bottle shop, there, there has to be at least a little bit of shift away from that, I think. But I remember having this argument 10 years ago, and it was one of the reasons that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very critical of Stone these days because, you know, God, it was 10 years ago, uh, Greg Cook was of saying, you know, you had all of this terrible Stone beer in Australia that was being grey market imported, um, and you had all of these people sort of saying, well, we want it, we want to try it, we know it's not going to be great, but we, 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 we want it, so we're going to buy it. So there was this whole grey market import that Greg uh, Cook tried to sort of say pretty much the same thing. Yeah. You're not getting good examples. You're not getting educated. You're hurting your local breweries who are making some good stuff. Um, and you, the, the other thing is that you're not trying my beer. I'm, I really care about the quality of my stone beers. And if you're drinking it in Australia when it's six months old and stale, you're not getting the experience I want to give. Um, and then suddenly sure. we, we saw stone, you know, their sales decline in the US. They look to, um, you know, hedge their, their their market. They start sending it over here, and all of the things that he identified. It's going to be expensive. It's going to sit on shelves. People will buy it the first time. Have come to pass, even though they're doing it legitimately. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, um, but it, it it sounds to some extent you're saying, well, we want to provide a bottle shop that it's not just the everyday beers. We have these right. exciting exotic beers that are coming in, especially for our market. Um, it, 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 it sounds like you're um, feeding that beast that is now coming back to bite you by saying, well, we want even more exciting and you can't you know, satisfy us, so we're going to go direct and do it ourselves. Is there an element of that? I, th I think you, you've probably said something that hits a little close to home. There is this internal struggle that um, I mentioned in the article as well, is that one thing to point out is that I am one of those people, you know, so <laughs> yeah. it's not that I'm saying, you know, I'm not the, the father figure standing on top of, uh, you know, of the mountain saying, don't do this, don't do that. I'm also one of those people who loves to go buy things overseas, you know, so I guess I'm also talking to myself um, <laughs> as, a, as someone who, who you know, I, I totally get the idea of, man, I really want to try that beer. How am I going to get it? And then I think part of it, no, we can easily blame this on like Instagram culture and this one up untapped culture, but it's, I don't think it's just that. I think it's also this idea of the chase, which is fun, the hunt, you know, hunting, hunting for a beer and finally getting it, you know, arriving on your doorstep or waiting forever and finally getting to try it. It's so much fun. You know, it's because a lot of us are basically, you know, adult Pokemon collectors. <laughs> and what we like to do is we like to find, we don't want to catch them all. And, and I think someone's written an article of, of this um, uh, kind of on this, but I, I've been saying this for a while. It's that I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing, but I do see it as it's really hard to keep up. And so maybe what I'm saying is we should all kind of take a collective deep breath and go, what are we really doing here? Because if the idea is to try every beer in the world, you know, and, and, that's the only goal that sounds fun for a while, but it's going to get quite exhausting and it's going to put a lot of people out of business. So I reckon there can be some balance, you know, 
if you want to stream Game of Thrones because you don't want to, you know, wait two months for it to come out, awesome. You know, do your thing. I, I, I'm not here to judge anybody for going out and finding some awesome Barrel Age Imperial Stout because I'm probably looking for it as well. What I'm saying is that maybe there's some sort of balance between that and also going, well, this time, how about I skip this one? Because I know that, you know, my local pub is putting on a tap takeover this week and I'd rather give them my money, you know? And the beer is going to, the funny thing is, is and I, most people wouldn't admit this because it's really hard to admit after you've spent all this money and time finding a beer, but I'd say 80% of the time, whenever I go find one of these really rare things and get it shipped over, it's never as good as, as the time I spent on it. You know, the, the satisfaction of opening it is like the least fun part. I think. But that, the, um, and that's a, a unique thing. I mean, I, I thought it was really interesting when you said, you know, we're adult Pokemon collectors and it's not, it, it, it's the pleasure of collecting because Pokemon. 100%. Yeah. And I, I look at it in wine and I used to be quite dismissive of people, you know, because there's always the wanker at the end of a dining table who wants to judge everybody else's taste in wine. Um, and, you know, there, there's an aloofness about that and a snobbery about that. But then again, there's a whole lot of people who, for them, almost the pleasure in wine comes from going down into the cellar, pulling out this bottle, telling everybody where it came from, pouring it into their Riedel um, decanter. And the, the wine itself is almost second, secondary to the pleasure they get from getting pleasure from the wine. Um, and th- it, it sounds like that's what you're describing about the hunt yeah, and the chase. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. I think it's too easy to d- dismiss this as a bunch of entitled people just trying to get what they want and having no regard for the, you know, the local economy. I don't like, that's not fair because I, I think that everyone does this to some extent. They, they, they love the idea of the search for something unique. And they also love the best thing about beer is that when you have those people over and, you know, they may not have been that exposed to it, but they're open to try something new and you pull out this bottle and you tell them all about where you got it, where you were, you know, how hard it was to get it. And then all these cool flavors that you're about to try. And the fact that you may not ever get to try this again, I think all that plays into it. And I think that's super important because that's what really boosted my love for this industry was, was that were those experiences more than just, this is a really good pale ale I can drink 24 of every Saturday. You know what I mean? So I guess what I'm getting at is I, like, like I said before, I don't think this is like the be all end all problem of the industry. I think it was just something really interesting. I, I started to notice, and I noticed it affects us like directly because I saw directly customers who were buying from my shop, buying less. And at the same time, their Facebook accounts were showing up all these beers from the U.S. that we couldn't get. So it was like literally, hey, well, how come that guy hadn't bought from us in a while? And then, I, you know, it's like, oh, then you look online, he's got 14 bottles from the U.S., you know, or some shipment from uh, a bottle shop in Europe that's sending over here. And so it's like, well, that. Like I thought that's a literal um, effect on our business. It, it wasn't just some sort of like, you know, thing I was noticing. It was like, it was an actual thing that was happening to our business. So that's why I pointed it out. But isn't there an element of that about what, and, and I know, take your point before you said, yeah, I'm telling myself this, but isn't there an element about the, the business model um, when you were importing beers for your own business, um, the, the beers become you know, outrageously expensive for what they are. Um, quite yep. often the brewers aren't entirely happy themselves that the beers are being sold in a secondary market because they see the price that their beers are going for um, for somebody else. Aren't, aren't yep. you, to, to some extent, basing your business on catering to exactly that sort of mentality um, and upsetting well, a whole... Well, problem, of, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and again, just, I mean, one of the touchstones for me... Um, whenever I look at 
um, this as an outsider um, of, of the industry is the whole West Fletcheran thing because you know when, when you look at Stone um, and Stone was sort of saying don't buy my beer they were a business they were releasing their beers um, and people were saying you know once they sell their beers outside of their brewery in they're, they're running a business they're commercial they have to put up with people wanting it um, and yet the, the monks at West Fletcheran actually go to great lengths um, they don't run the business commercially they don't sell any more than they have to just to keep the monastery open you essentially sign an agreement with them that you won't resell these beers um, and th- you know yet to- I have some in, in my cellar right now yeah you know, how did I get those and, and yeah. look I, I've been writing about beer for almost 20 years the only time I bought it um, was uh, when they did a special release to rebuild their roof and they sold something. Yeah, they did the 12, 12, 12 thing, right? Yeah, and uh, and, and I bought it um, in Europe um, when I saw it and like I almost gave myself permission to buy it outside of the, the monastery because I thought, well, you know, there, there, there's almost a moral dimension in the case of West Fletcher. Um, and aren't you, when you're willing to feed that beast to satisfy a bunch of people who are demanding it because I, I presume it's because you know that they'll go somewhere else and get it, isn't that exactly the same mindset? Because these guys are basically pleading with people not to resell it. Well, here's the deal. I think that's a separate case. I think a lot of these, a lot of the, the this trade is um, not that. You know, I think that's a pretty unique case of a of a like a little bit more, um, a, le- less of a gray area, more black and white. I think a lot of the stuff that's coming over is a little bit more of a gray area, um, in the fact that. Um, the breweries aren't saying don't buy it. They're just not sending it over, you know, officially, if that makes sense. So I guess what the other thing to touch on, which is the West Flutteran thing really brings up a good point, is there's another problem with this. Um, and, and we've noticed this as well. It's it's that whole once it's available, it's no longer wanted kind of thing. And so West Flutteran is a really good example of a beer that no one could ever find. And then all of a sudden it was here. And now I have them sitting on my shelf and no one wants them, you know? And it's like, there is a, a bit of that part of the culture, which is, it's, it's a little bit more frustrating where we spend so much time trying to find something that people want, bringing it over legally, you know, or, or like legitly. And then when it lands here, you know, it doesn't sell out because once it comes here legitly, it's no longer, there's no longer a hunt involved. It's like putting, you know, the goat down in Jurassic park. And it's like, well, no, the, the T-Rex, he wants to hunt. He doesn't want to be fed, you know? And so there's a, there's a kind of a weird thing that goes on where as soon as something's made available and is, and is readily available, it's no longer uh, ex- exclusive and cool, you know? Yeah, the, whole, it, it, the whole point of this is that people want to be able to go, I got this because I went through all this trouble. You can't get it unless you go through all this trouble. And then it's like, well, there's, there's 10 bottles of Jester King sitting on my shelf right now. So that's no longer hard to get. So that's not really, you know, what's the trouble? I can get that anywhere. To me, look, I have been through this soul searching for, for the same reason. And, and that's why West Fletcher for me is just such an easy, you know, it's the easy one. And, um, but yet, as you said, you sell it. And um, you, you started the conversation by saying one of the reasons that you wanted to open Bucket Boys was to have a site where you could educate people. And you, you, you went through the rigorous process of getting Cicerone training. And for me, um, you know, West Fletcher, and A, they don't want it sold, um, you know, and for, for very good moral reasons. But also, in, in the case of, uh, you know, you can get, you know, an almost identical version of that beer in St. Bernardus, which was made, which made West Fletcher for such a long time, um, that if you're truly about educating, so, so, well, you can't get West Fletcher in Australia, go to 
take the, the the time to go to Belgium, go get it. But we've got this beer that is, and you you get to tell the. Uh, awesome story about how St. Bernardus made the beer until 1992 and then you're actually educating people but when you do start to buy into that beast well everyone wants it I need to have it because other shops have it then you become part of the problem to, to some extent is that a like I guess so um, I mean look all of your points are completely valid and I don't, I wouldn't I'd be pretty much a hypocrite if I didn't say that what you're what, what you're pointing at is, is, is absolutely correct I guess um, from a business perspective, you have to look at it a bit differently because there are a very li- finite number of people who want these kind of beers. Um, even in the craft beer world, there's a finite number, you know, so the percentage of craft beer may be, you know, two, three percent or whatever. And then of that, you know, there may be only like two or three percent of that who mm, want, you know, barrel sours that are, you know, so. So what I think I have a couple solutions and I think that one of them is pretty easy. One of them is to basically bring over more good stuff and flood the market with such good stuff that people just don't need to bother. And there's too much to keep up on here anyways. And I think that's what's happened a bit in the U.S. You still have the collectors in the U.S., but a lot of people are going, you know what? My brewery down the road is so good and my bottle shop down the road is so good and my pub has 40 taps of the best beer in the world. I don't really like I'd love to get my hands on it, but I'm, I'm like, why bother? Because I, like, there's such good stuff already here. And I think that's that's practically where I see us going is just trying to do even better of bringing stuff over. Um, the other, you know, more romantic solution, which I think is what you're kind of pointing at is this idea of maybe we all step back as bottle shops and as consumers and go, you know, some things are meant to be enjoyed at the source and some things are meant to be elusive and maybe we just kind of leave them, you know, maybe instead of, me spending $400 on a bottle of beer, I spend $800 on a flight and I go out and visit the brewery and have it at the source and, and have an experience. So there's, there's a, maybe a way to kind of do both of those things, I guess, to counteract some of this without saying, I don't think the solution in, in, if as a, looking at it as a business owner is to say, well, um, we're not going to stock that because of A, and then look at every other store stocking it and all of our customers going to those stores. Mm. Because I feel like that's, that seems like a romantic solution, but it's not practical. So I'm trying to find practical solutions to this problem. And I think one of them is I think collectively as an industry here in Australia, we need to step up our game. So as the, I think as more breweries put out barrel programs and you know sour programs and, and start doing a little bit more intricate brewing, I think that people will spend more money on that. I think people are hungry for it. And there is like a gap in the market for that. So, and I think the other thing is that as more U.S. breweries see the market here as something to take advantage of, we'll start seeing a lot more of this come over, anyways, and that it'll it'll slowly sort itself out, just to, to you know some extent. But we're seeing that now to some extent because you know the yeah. the, the the core release stone beers. Um, you know, I have a just a habit of going to the, the big box retailers that have those, and you know it's just unusual to see anything that's younger than three months and i'm just constantly finding nine 12 13 months for the core range and there was a time when people were absolutely gagging you've got to send this over you've got to send this over and now it's available as you said it just languishes that touches to the point i was making though i Mm. don't think that i think australia is too small of a market to be in the business of brand building and that's what i was i guess i didn't say that properly the first time Mm. i don't think the idea should be i'm going to sign up 
uh, brewery X, whoever it is. I don't want to say a name, but you know, whatever. Yep. And I'm going to, I'm going to start bringing over containers every three months and, and selling their core range and, and putting some limiteds out and doing tap takeovers. I don't think that's the way forward. I think the way forward is there's so many breweries in the world. I mean, think about even in the U S there's like 5,000 to choose from, right. Or probably more now, who knows? Seven. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I think the, the way forward is kind of what we've started to do. And we're not the only ones, but a few places started to do this. Hey, you know, Brewery X, we want to send over a pallet of your beers. We're going to put on an event. We're going to have them available and they're going to be gone in a week and everyone's going to get really excited about it. And then, you know, next month we're going to do Brewery Y and then we're going to bring over all their beers. Or we're going to say, you know, how about, you know, all of Fort Collins, Colorado, we're going to put together a mixed pallet and do a Fort Collins test showcase and, yep. and have some package available. I think that's the good way forward instead of having all, because it, that counters the culture of once they've tried it, they don't want it again. And I think there's enough to go around. There's enough new stuff coming out to where that should be where the high end market goes to instead of this idea of just, you know, pallets and pallets getting flogged through the big box retailers without a market to, to satisfy it. Um, I've, and, and we're not the only ones who have this idea. You know, there's, there's other shops and other bottle shops and other breweries who are doing this. Uh, and other distributors as well. But I, I think that's the way forward. And I think that makes it fun because then it culminates, you know, into something that it's a must-see thing. It's like, it's almost like the, like a big movie release back in the day where you're just like, well, I got to go see this because otherwise I'm, gonna, I'm never going to get to see it. You know, it, it's, it's more of an event. And I think that taps into that whole, you know, uh, collector slash, you know, hunter model um, does that make sense what I'm saying? Uh, no, absolutely does. And I guess the one thing, you know, and you made the point that you speak from a business point of view um, and you've got to do it. I guess when I see that, I see if I was an Australian brewery, for example, that was sort of really focusing on, you know, getting my distribution out, improving the quality of my beers, having a barrel age program, um, I would see your model as essentially the way that you see the people self-importing um because you know they're going oh you know guys who used to come into our barrel room um and it's taken us three years to make these barrel aged beers are now getting stuff online and that 500 dollars used to come to my brewery um and again i've got a bit of a romantic notion as you pointed out um it's a little bit you know yeah well i guess i'll counter that by saying i think that that is offset by all of the people who come to those events, especially at our place. And I can't speak for any other business, but I'm assuming it's the same that they come for the event, but they stay around for everything else. So yes, we may be bringing over, like say we're bringing over cascade and we're doing a big cascade, you know, uh, sours event in a couple of weeks. Right. But all those people will try all the cascade and they'll also have a couple other beers while they're here. And they might take something away from them when they leave. But those are people who are going to come back in a week when the cascade isn't on and, and go, what else do you have? What's local? What can I go visit? So it's not, I think the places that are doing these events are doing them. I'm not doing these as a way to make my money. I'm doing these as a way to create more enthusiastic beer fans. And those enthusiastic beer fans in turn buy all of the local Australian stuff that we stock, which is a majority of our fridges in the meantime. So we're, we're, we're in the business of creating beer fanatics not in, in the business of taking away the business from the local brewery, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, and speaking I, of- I, think, I think those people still will go. Like, that's what I'm getting at. I, I don't think that it'll deter from the local market. I think it will actually increase the amount of people who are available 
to, to become customers. But isn't that true then of the people that are self-importing? Because and, and um, they, they would make the same, you know, I'm creating an excitement in, in that little world, which then flows down to you, which then flows down to, to the mainstream. Yeah, it could be. I, I, I mean, I think that there is an element of that. I think there's also an element which should be pointed out that on all these levels, sometimes you reach a certain point in your journey where you ev- nothing is great unless it's the best of the best, you know? And some people get to that point. And you, you mentioned the wine game has, has really gotten like that in some circles where it's just, it's all about the rare, unique, you know, aged, you know, hard to find stuff. And it does like, they're not even a part of our market anymore. Mm. So, yeah. So I, I can see, uh, what I see is that our business will have to evolve and to rely less on the high end market and more on the local market. What I'm saying is I see a bridge and the bridge being two things. One, when we bring over these cool things, I think what it does is it also encourages the local breweries to kind of step out of their comfort zone and see what else is out there and go, you know, a good example is the New England IPA, right? It's like, as as we've there's been more and more examples coming from the U.S. I've noticed our local examples have gotten better and better, and what people have uh, accepted as a good version has gotten more rigorous as as people have gotten to try the world's best. And I think so. That I think that's very important. You have to try the best things in the world to know to have the right sort of palate to judge what is appropriate. And in a fledgling market or like a you know we're, we're pretty much like teenagers here in Australia you know, we still need to learn from those breweries. And the only way to learn from them is to have them come over and try their beers at their best and hear the stories of the people who made them. So I think that's still important. But I also do see in in the future, I think as Australian breweries get more adventurous and more confident, I think that there'll be less and less reliance on that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. But speaking of exciting you know, evolution uh, of, of your business, um, you, you do have some exciting sure. plans. Um, you're opening two new stores. Yeah, so we uh, just signed the lease out in Penrith to open a bottle shop there. That's actually where I live. And my business partner, Clint, that's where he went to school. It's where he's from. He grew up in Warrington County. So um, we've always wanted to make a shop out there. We We also thought that our first shop should be somewhere closer to the city, which is why Merrickville was first. But we've always had kind of a soft spot in our heart for uh, moving out west um, because we think there's such a big opportunity out there and there's a lot of underserviced, you know, beer people um, who are, end up driving into the city every week to go find something good to drink. And it's not just us. I've, I've noticed that, you know, there's a rusty penny has just opened up. Um, there's high street social, which will actually be right next door to our shop. Um, and at the same time, we've been doing this thing with Lindley's, uh, which is a brand new development in Darling square. Um, so we're opening a shop there, which is a bottle shop and a bar. And so it's kind of all culminated. The, all these opportunities came at the same time. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. So it, by the end of the year, we should have three bottle shops, two bars, and the online store. And so Bucket Boys is going to exponentially grow. And dare I ask, how are you going to pay for this? Well, I mean, we've been asking ourselves the same question for a while. You know, I learned from a, re- a couple of really, really interesting people in the music industry. And their uh, sort of mantra so to speak, was take the opportunity, find out how to pay for it later. Um, we didn't necessarily do that, but I, I see once we saw the opportunity for Penrith and for Darling Square, we had to jump on them. Um, so now we've come up with a pretty innovative way for how we're going to help fund them, because obviously, as you, you can imagine, 
opening bars and bottle shops is really expensive. Um, so we are actually going to be launching uh, an equity crowdfunding campaign in about two, two and a half, three weeks, something like that, uh, depending on when this airs. So sometime in mid-April, we'll be announcing it. And the idea is very simple. It's something that I've, I've dealt with a lot in the music industry when we used to raise money for albums. And it's that idea of what better way to get people excited and to help raise money than to allow people to invest in your company, you know? And so it's not, it, it's kind of like a journey that we can go on together, which I think is a really cool concept. Um, if you're going to spend the money on the beer anyways, you know, might as well have a bit of ownership and also, you know, you get a pretty awesome discount um, that uh, comes along with that. So I, th I think it's going to be pretty cool. And hopefully we'll raise the money to open those shops and to also brew a lot more beer, um, which is something that we're really keen to do more of. I, I, All of these things cost money. Yeah, and, and, and that's what I was uh, – I, I knew that you were looking into equity crowdfunding, so that's what I thought I'd just have, see how I much you're willing you were to – I Yeah, how, how much you're willing to sort of say uh, um, about it. But I guess um, do, do you have a rough idea at this stage you can announce of what sort of target you're looking for for, for the crowdfunding? Yeah. Well, so here's the deal. Um, we're going to set a minimum target probably around 200000 because that basically funds the new shops. It, re, it helps us redo our website. It also helps us get some much needed cash flow in the business so we can do some more brewing and also start bringing, importing more beer as we've been discussing throughout the podcast. Um, and one thing that we're doing that's I think pretty unique is that we've had this white whale society um, for a while now, which is basically like a membership uh, group that gets a, a discount and first access to beers. And so we're actually incorporating that into our crowdfunding. So um, everybody who funds, will, there'll be a, a few different levels, but, there's some like insane discounts that we're going to offer. And the reason why is because we think, look, if you're going to invest in our business, then, you know, you should get something for it besides the opportunity to maybe make a few bucks one day. Um, and so, yeah, we, we're looking to, we're looking to raise at least 200,000. We're hoping to hit a million dollars, which would be, you know, in my wildest dreams would be amazing. Um, and would mean that we're, we would be looking at opening a couple more shops um, in other cities and hopefully opening a brewery as well, which is the final piece of the of the puzzle that we haven't quite gotten the money for yet. Um, so yeah, I think things are looking up. It's just a a bit of a crazy time right now, trying to um, you know manage all these openings and cash flows, and you know really just trying to hone in on on what works and what doesn't in in Bucket Boys. And what percentage of the the business are you putting up for equity card funding? We're give, we're giving away ten percent of the business, which is a pretty substantial amount. Uh, I think it's the most that I think I think there might have been one or two other people that have given away that much, but yeah, it's it's quite a big amount of the business. And is that to um, raise the million? So you know, if you get to a million, yeah, that's ten yeah, percent of the business. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So every one hundred thousand dollars is is one percent of the business, basically. So I mean, that's a fairly significant, and I appreciate you haven't announced this yet, so I'm not sure how much you want to go into this, but that's a fairly significant valuation on a retail bottle shop you know that, that essentially um values the business at 10 million dollars i guess um if you got well, the full subscription we did look at what other companies were doing and that seems to be about on par um with what other companies were offering as well and you know the fact that we have so many different avenues for our business to, to so many revenue streams that are are you know just on the cusp of becoming great revenue makers we see the value of the business as being a, actually a lot more than that but you know, we also have, we're, we're trying to be grounded in reality. I mean, having three bottle shops and two bars, an online store, 
a brewery with a head brewer, you know, that we, so we also have the head brewer as well. Mm-hmm. We also own a second brewing, um, a part of, of a second brewery in, in the from bin stuff that we do. Um, and then all the, uh, the context that we have for importing and distribution, you know, it's a quite a, a big company if you, if you look at it in that, in that way. So there's, there's a, a very, very big uh, growth potential. Um, especially um, once we get these other two stores online, the, the, just the volume that we'll be able to push through just, just opens up a lot of doors that we haven't gotten to yet. So we just see the, uh, we see the valuation as kind of a reflection of where we're going to be at the, at the end of this year. So do, do you worry that as, a, as the business grows and you've got a couple of stores and you require certain levels of turnover, um, as you said when we were talking about the sort of uh, exotic beers, there's only a small percentage of the market that is ever really going to want those. Are we going to start to see Bucket Boys becoming more about a pale ale and golden ale and summer ale type business because that's where the vast majority of the beer market will, will, will tend to stay? <clears throat> well, here's the good news. The good news is that more shops actually makes it easy for us, easier, because in, in the current circumstance, when we, you, a case is a case. Right. You buy, let's say you buy a barrel aged beer from a brewery in the state and it, it's 12 bottles, 750 mils, and it costs you $430 because it's super expensive, whatever it is. Right. Well, when we have three stores, we can still buy that same case of 12. And instead of it sitting on the shelf collecting dust in our, you know, on our, in our fridge in the Merrickville store, we can have it sitting on three different shelves. And then if we sell out on one because people really love that, we can move stock around. Uh, and then that it still can also sit on our online store. So what I see, it, I actually see it as a positive because we're still always going to be about, you know, a, a nice range and selection. And then we can also curate each individual store to kind of cater to the local market. So if some markets are more keen for Australian beers, we can have a wider range of Australian beers. Um, or if some markets are less keen for high end stuff, we can just have less of that on the shelf. But when you walk into a Bucket Boys, you're always going to see an awesome selection. That's the end goal. And the online store kind of gives us the ability to do that. So we can always push it through. We can reach more people that way. Absolutely. So, well, yeah. um, we're well up against our, uh, I'm not sure if you're yeah, aware good. of the cook limit. Um, so uh, great chat. I knew a little um, bit about that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for, uh, for sort of going in and sort of, of giving us such a deep dive into some really, uh, you know, complex issues that all businesses are facing at the moment as the, uh, the, the, the beer industry grows so rapidly. But uh, Jonathan, thank you very much and uh, you know, all the best with your equity crowd fund and uh, opening yeah. the, the new stores. No doubt you're going to be very busy. Well, thank you so much for having me on and we look forward to sharing this with everybody and hopefully you know, having a really, really successful end to 2019. And that was Jonathan Hepner from Bucket Boys. And thanks go to our sponsors, including Rallings, Labels, Stickers and Packaging, for making this show possible. Even if you have an established label supplier, have a chat to Rallings, Labels, Stickers and Packaging to find out how their flexibility can make things easier for your brewery. Call Rallings on 1300 852 235. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. 
Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at bruisenews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. And we look forward to another conversation next week. Thank you.